On this podcast, we go one step beyond publications and guidelines to speak directly with leading experts in interventional pulmonology. This podcast will address not only fundamental topics in exciting publications, but also unconventional topics for which the evidence base isn't that robust. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily endorsed by the AABIP. This is your host, Odit Chadda, an assistant professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And with that, let's dive into the next episode. I am delighted to introduce our guest today, Dr. Mihir Parikh. Dr. Parikh is an interventional pulmonologist and the Advanced Diagnostic Bronchoscopy Fellowship Director at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, uh, which incidentally is um, probably the nation's largest referral center for patients with excessive central airway collapse, which includes DBM and EDAC. With him today, I'm going to discuss the highly debated topic of stenting in excessive central airway collapse, or ECAC. Dr. Parikh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Before we start, do you have any conflicts of interest to disclose? Uh, I do. I am an educational consultant for Olympus America and Boston Scientific. Awesome. Thank you. So let's get started. I'll um, get us started with a short introduction on stent trials. Mm-hmm. So patients with uh, confirmed EDAC or TBM are considered for stent trials. Uh, and they must undergo assessment with patient-reported respiratory questionnaires, uh, quality of life uh, questionnaires, including the SGRQ, MMRC, et cetera, and functional assessment with spirometry or six-minute walk testing at baseline. Now, following this, they undergo a stent trial with um, some kind of stent, and then stent maintenance protocols are initiated using um, nebulized saline, uh, guaifenesin, and a flutter valve several times a day. Patients are, at this point, educated to do daily activities as tolerated while the stent is in place to assess subjective response. A follow-up visit is scheduled around seven days following stent placement to re-evaluate patient-reported symptoms, quality of life questionnaires, and functional assessment. And at about 10 to 14 days following stent placement, patients are scheduled for stent removal. Finally, a patient is considered to have a positive or successful stent trial or not based on subjective improvement, quality of life questionnaires, and objective improvement in spirometry and six-minute walk test. So, Dr. Parikh, who should undergo a stent trial? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one we struggle with a lot in the clinic when we see these patients. But, you know, ultimately, I think those patients that we consider to be appropriate for stent evaluation are those patients in whom there is a significant pretest probability that they have symptomatic ESAC or tracheobronchomalacia or EDAC, and those patients that are going to benefit potentially from surgical correction of their airways. And so this is a, it's a partnership that we have between ourselves and interventional pulmonology and thoracic surgery to evaluate patients together. And we really don't take patients through the stent trial process until they've met a couple of criteria. First being that they have severe excess central airway collapse, which we define as greater than 90% dynamic collapse. And once all of their medical comorbidities have been optimized, you know, we, we have found that there's a significant number of patients who have comorbid concomitant gastroesophageal reflux, um, poorly controlled asthma, vocal cord dysfunction, and, and a number of other disorders that 
once properly treated, could potentially lead to significant improvement of symptoms before they even get to stenting or tracheobronchoplasty. And if they do get to that point of stent trial, it'll make it a much cleaner trial for us to do. Um, and then finally, it's a question of whether or not there's appropriate surgical candidate. If the surgeons with whom we see these patients in clinic feel that for whatever reason, even if they have severe significant tracheobronchomalacia, they're not going to be a proper surgical candidate. We, we tend not to take those patients through the stent trial process because it's not really giving us any valuable information at that point. Fantastic. So that is, that is uh, very, very useful. Uh, so you briefly touched on this. Can you describe the structure of your TBM EDAC program at uh, BIDMC? Um, and again, are all patients who undergo a stent trial first assessed by a surgeon to determine their candidacy? Yeah, the way that we generally see patients is we see them together in a multidisciplinary clinic. Um, it's, it's a partnership between one interventional pulmonologist and one thoracic surgeon. We have several of each, but we tend to see patients in structured clinics together. Um, patients come in for their evaluation with uh, pulmonary function testing and a dynamic airway CT performed on the same day. Following that, they come <clears throat> excuse me, and see myself or one of my colleagues in interventional pulmonology as well as a thoracic surgeon. And if at that clinic visit, and based on the review of their symptoms, their pulmonary function, their dynamic imaging, we feel that it is reasonable to proceed with stent trial, then a stent evaluation is scheduled. Um, patients usually come back within a week or so for stent placement. A dynamic CT is a, a dynamic bronchoscopy is done at that same time to confirm what we see on their imaging. The stents are placed. Patients are then, as you described earlier, sent home or um, you know, if they're from out of town to their local residence, um, to see how they do over the course of that week or two that they have the sense in place. We encourage them to be active, to get around, to really give us a good sense of whether or not the stents are making a significant difference mm -hmm. in their quality of life. And then we bring them back, like you described, pull the stents out with repeat objective and subjective testing before. You also mentioned that this is some uh, the candidacy is something you guys struggle with, and if um, a center like yours struggles with this, I can imagine uh, the problem elsewhere in the country. It's something I struggle with personally too, yeah. as to who to subject to a stent trial, um, or who to refer to a bigger center. Now, uh, I mean, even at your center, there was a study published at the in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery uh, just last year. Uh, I think the first author was Buitrago, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> and uh, even only 161 out of the 333 patients who underwent a stent trial finally underwent a tracheobronchoplasty. And 41 patients who did not undergo tracheobronchoplasty were not deemed to be surgical candidates. So I can imagine this is um, uh, a dynamic process and mm -hmm. things change. Um, also, for our listeners, we must clarify, um, based on the same study, that you know this is a major surgery, even at a center with uh, competent, experienced surgeons, uh, severe complications can occur in up to a, a quarter of patients. Mm -hmm. So while these patients are very sick at baseline, I think uh, to clarify that candidacy and patient selection is is probably the most important and the most difficult. That's right. It goes both ways as well, too. You know, I, I find that, you know, part of the stent trial is for us to get a sense of how well they're going to approve and whether or not that warrants subjecting them to something like a trigger bronchoplasty. But it's important information for the patient, too. It Absolutely. helps them set expectations for what they may or may not feel like 
after they undergo a surgery like tracheobronchoplasty. And, and a, a number of patients that bow out, meaning that undergo the stent trial, but then don't proceed with tracheobronchoplasty is, is patient driven and that the benefits mm-hmm. that they derive while, while maybe objectively significant weren't enough for the patients to feel that that was sufficient to have them undergo something like a tracheobronchoplasty because they we, we, the, the surgeons here do a fantastic job of laying out the risks and the benefits of mm-hmm. these patients. Thank you for clarifying that. So um, let's, um, let's discuss the choice of the stent uh, next. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, let me briefly mention what are some of the complications that uh, have been seen. So in a prospective study by Ernst et al. in CHESS 2007, on 58 patients who underwent silicon stent placement for tracheobronchomalacia, there were 49 complications, including mainly 21 partial stent ob- obstructions, 14 infections, and 10, and 10 stent migrations. Um, in addition, we always know that you know when using Y-stents, um, a subset of patients may develop severe intractable cough, and this may limit the interpretation of a stent trial. However, uh, the same group actually later uh, clarified or reported that the stent-related complications decreased from 40% to 9% after the adoption of a protocol using mucolytics and expectorant therapy. Then in a a retrospective review on 33 patients published by uh, Majid et al. in Respiration 2017, there was only one airway infection, one stent migration, and one pneumothorax with the use of uncovered self-expanding metallic stents. The median duration for these stents was seven days. All stents were removed without complication. And at the time of stent removal, no granulation tissue was observed in 31%, and mild granulation tissue was observed in 69%. So it does seem uh, to me, Dr. Barak, that the higher inner to outer diameter ratio, better airway conformation, lower complication rate of these uncovered self-expanding metallic stents make them the natural first choice for a stent trial. Is this currently your practice? And if so, uh, could you share with us scenarios in which you would consider using silicone stents? Yeah, no, it is our um, our practice now to use almost exclusively uncovered self-expanding metal stents in patients for the stent trials. It, you know, for a lot of the reasons that you describe it, it, we've found that the stent-related complications are much less and it makes for a much cleaner stent trial in terms of allowing us to get a sense of whether our patients are truly benefiting um, from stenting or not. Uh, there, are, there are a couple of times where we consider um, using a silicone stent. It, 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 a lot of it has to do with diameter. The largest self-expanding metal stents you know, currently on the market that we have access to are about 20 millimeters in size. Mm-hmm. So if a patient has an airway larger than that, it can be complicated. You know, silicone stents are not much bigger, but we do occasionally use um, a Y, a silicone Y stent in patients with really large airways because the migration rate can be a little bit less than where we use a, a metal step. But that that's really um, one of the few times where we're doing it um, nowadays. Perfect. Yeah, I, I think also... Um... Patient compliance and follow-up is uh, is critical in people who we put in uh, any stent, of course, but more so in people with uncovered self-expanding metallic stents, right? That's absolutely right. You know, I, I think, you know, we are very careful to keep close tabs on these patients and they are scheduled for stent removal at the time of stent placement. So um, we, we're very aware not to lose any of these patients to follow-up because we have seen, you know, patients coming in with long-term stenting and the complications therein. 
Awesome. Uh, so uh, you briefly alluded to this, and, and I would refer our listeners to a study published uh, from the same center, which is a series of 10 patients uh, from BIDMC or with Munyakun syndrome who had tracheobronchomalacia underwent a stent trial. This is in CHESS 2011. So I can imagine this subset of patients um, with tracheobronchomalacia, EDAC in general, being challenging to size stents. Can you briefly describe how you size your stents? Yeah, it, it can be complicated. A lot of the times it's more of an art uh, than a science. And that, that's what I tell the fellows when we're training them in this procedure here at the BI. I, I start with using the dynamic CT scan. I use the inspiratory views on the dynamic CT and try to get a, as good of a sense of the diameter of the airways based on that. Um, oftentimes, it, the patients have not a, a, a truly circular airway. So you do have to do a little bit of fuzzy math to get a sense of what the true diameter of the airway is. Mm-hmm. Some of my partners use the, um, the Merit Aerosizer, the, the stent sizer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally am not a huge um, fan of this because I feel that it, it I, I just don't get a great sense of the airway diameter with it. I think, you know, you can kind of size the airway to whatever you want using that thing. So I, I also use CRE balloons. Mm-hmm. Um, just place the balloon into the airway and then inflate it to approximately what I think the airway size is based on the CT scan and then get a sense, you know, using both feel and look about how snug the balloon is around the airway to get a sense of diameter. The other thing that, you know, going back to the CT scan, I, I do find it helpful to look in multiple planes, you know, axial, sagittal, coronal, mm-hmm. to get as close of a circular measurement on the airway as possible, particularly in the main stem bronchi, the sagittal and the coronal views can be much more helpful than the, than the axial cuts. Awesome. Thank you. So, is it, you know, a lot of these people, especially with EDAC, you know, the diseases in the parenchyma, they have extensive um, uh, extent of airway involvement uh, just due to change in uh, uh, equalization of pressure point location. So is it often that you have to place two stents, say, in the trachea with someone who has extensive disease or usually does one stent hold trachea open and uh, there's no choke point migration? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. It, it, it's, it's one that we struggle with. You know, I, I think we tend to produce with the stent trial as close of a match to the scenario a patient might experience after they undergo tracheobronchoplasty because that's what we're trying to approximate. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, we stent, you know, I, my practice is to place one stent in the right main stem and the BI, sort of one long stent. It, because it's uncovered, you don't have to worry about jailing the right upper lobe. Mm-hmm. I also place a long stent in the left main stem and then one long stent in the trachea. The, the longest stent that we generally use is a six centimeter stent, which does give you a pretty good um, uh, effect of taking, uh, of stabilizing a significant portion of the trachea. I tend not to place more than one stent in the trachea because A, I think that introduces the possibility of more stent-related complications, mm-hmm. including granulation tissue, mucus impaction, and stent migration, as well as I don't want to extend the stent too far into the cervical trachea. That, that's one area that the surgeons don't have access to. And were I to stent that, I feel that I would, I fear that I would be overestimating the benefit that a patient might derive from mm-hmm. tracheobronchoplasty, which is kind of going against what we're trying to achieve with, with uh, the stent trial. We, we tend to say that you need to stabilize, you know, greater than 75% of the central airways with the stent trial in order to approximate what a patient might experience with tracheobronchoplasty. And generally, a six centimeter stent in the trachea and one stent each in the right mm-hmm. and the left gets you there. Perfect. Thank you.
Uh, and, and so you did mention that you look at the CTs. Uh, so of course we can um, assess patients based with uh, based on dynamic or functional bronchoscopy or dynamic CTs. Uh, have you all ever looked at um, doing dynamic bronchoscopies or functional bronchoscopies on patients post stent placement to see how their airways objectively look? Um, you know, just in, in, especially in patients with EDAC, uh, you know, who may have this choke point migration phenomenon. Yeah, no, I, I I thought about doing it. It's hard to justify that to a patient, um, mm -hmm. but it, it's a great um, thought process to see exactly what what does happen. Is there a choke point migration? You know, I, I worry sometimes that that is part of the reason why some patients, even after having a successful stent trial, then go on to not having as robust of an outcome as we would like them to have after trachea bronchoplasty. And, and we do pick up some patients in whom you know, then their cervical malacia has become much more of a significant contributor to their symptoms. And in those patients, we have then done a cervical stent trial and mm -hmm. potentially even undergo cervical tracheobronchoplasty. Um, distally, it, it, it'd be a good question as to whether or not, you know, as to what we do see out there. But the question remains as to what we're going to be able to do once we find it. Got it. Thank you. And then... Um... About your mucolytic expectorant therapy, do you um, what do you usually use after you place these stents? Yeah, patients were put on a regimen of uh, guaifenesin, 1,200 milligrams twice a day, um, several times a day, flutter valve. Uh, uh, we place them on saline nebulizers, uh, QID, as well as whatever bronchodilator regimen that they have been on previously for asthma, COPD, or whatever concomitant airways disease that they have. Mm -hmm. um, we in our patients with silicone stents, where the risk of mucus impaction is is higher than in the uncovered stents, we do add on uh, nebulized N-acetylcysteine or mucomist mm -hmm. or hypertonic saline, depending on whether or not they can tolerate the mucomist, to help minimize the risk of stent obstruction or stent plugging in those patients. Two times a day, three times a day. How often? The mucomist twice a day, and the uh, hypertonic same twice a day. Perfect. Uh, so based on this, uh, I came across a study uh, that is ongoing in your center on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, and can you please uh, briefly describe to us the rationale and the protocol for this randomized trial uh, to assess whether patients with severe symptomatic excessive central airway collapse will benefit from short-term airway stent trial as compared to medical therapy only? Yeah, it, it's... Um... It's a clinical trial that we're currently enrolling in right now. And patients are randomized at their first clinic with us to our standard protocol of medical management, which includes a lot of the things that we've already talked about, including mucolytics, um, expectorants, flutter valve, and the like, as well as management and optimization of their medical comorbidities, OSA, asthma, GERD, vocal cord dysfunction, et cetera. Or they're randomized to all of that plus the stent trial. Mm -hmm. um, and then we see what their improvements are, if any, in symptoms based on you know, standardized quality of life or symptom-based questionnaires, as well as objective measurements of functional capacity, including pulmonary function and six-minute walk testing, um, before and after stenting or before and after medical management alone. Um, the idea being that we want to see whether or not there is any Significant, clinically significant improvements after stenting. You know, TBM is a really, it's, it's a tough disease to treat because patients come to us after oftentimes years of, of you know, of, of 
trying to get better with treatments of their asthma, treatments of GERD, being referred from one provider to another with really no benefit to their oftentimes severely debilitating symptoms. And I think by the time they come to us that there is just so much of a desire to get better that I think the placebo aspect of stenting is not insignificant. And we're trying to determine as best as we can how to tease out that placebo effect in the stent trial to really get as clean of an idea as to how well they're doing after stenting or not. The initial version of the trial actually had been randomizing patients to stenting versus a sham procedure mm -hmm. with, with no stenting to see how they do and blinding the patients to whether or not they were stented or not. Unfortunately, enrollment in that study was very, very low, which I mm -hmm. think speaks to how patients, how motivated they are to want to get better once they get Absolutely. to see us. Absolutely. So as we come to the end of this, I just want to sort of clarify a concept. I know that um, the um, data out there is very fuzzy on distinguishing TBM and EDAC mm -hmm. um, in various studies. And, and just based on your expert opinion, uh, do you feel that, you know, uh, this going down this whole route of stent trial, uh, Tracheobronchoplasty or PEXI is better for TBM patients and EDAC patients that usually have a problem down in the parenchyma. You fix that, you, you optimize their management, and most of them tend to get better or um, uh, at least a little better uh, with that. You know, I, I don't. I don't think that we, we, we I, I'll say that I don't think there is much of a difference in how we approach patients based on their morphology, broadly okay. speaking. I, I, I think the morphology of the airways is important to understand pathophysiology as well as to see if there are other comorbidities that may be contributing to their symptoms. But mm -hmm. you know, ultimately, we do oftentimes see patients who do have appropriate management of these comorbidities, but they're still significantly symptomatic from their central airway collapse. Mm -hmm. And we tend to treat the patients the same. There, you know, we do hear from the surgeons occasionally that the morphology of the airway can impact how well they feel that they're going to be able to achieve successful airway stabilization with tracheobronchoplasty. Some of these airway mm -hmm. morphologies, you know, sometimes you may see like a bow or a mustache-shaped trachea. Those can be trickier to treat than other morphologies from a surgical perspective. Uh -huh. And we worry that the stent trial may overestimate improvement in those patients, but we tend to treat them the same, just having that in the back of our heads. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that. So again, this has been a great and highly educational discussion for me, and I'm sure it'll serve to be the same for our listeners. Um, Dr. Parikh, any closing comments? No, I really appreciate this. It, it's um, it's a, a very complicated disease, and I know there's a lot of discussion and, and, and um, controversy around it, but uh, and as we grow and learn more here at the BI, I hope we get to continue these conversations because it's a, it, it, it's a disease that is debilitating and we're, we're, mm -hmm. we're doing our best to make patients feel better. Great. Again, thank you for your time today. And it has been a pleasure hosting you on the AABIP podcast. Thank you. Thank you. With that, we conclude an exciting episode here on the AABIP podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Do also check out our website, theippodcast.com, and please do provide us with feedback and suggestions on what topic and which expert you want to hear next. Until next time, take care.